This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we take a journey from field to finished garment thanks to a new documentary called Fashion Reimagined. At Madrid Design Festival, maker Moritz Krefter discusses design education. Plus, research practice material cultures explains why bio-based materials are key in rethinking our architectural industry. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. We start today's program at the cinema, where, later this week, a new documentary on the fashion industry hits the silver screen in the UK. Fashion Reimagined follows the designer Amy Powney, founder of the label Mother of Pearl, as she embarks on a mission to transform her entire business and create a sustainable clothing collection. Amy joined Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, in the studio to discuss the film. But first, a clip from the documentary. I grew up in a caravan with no water, electricity or heating. And a lot of people that were involved in the fashion scene didn't grow up like that. It's like it's a completely different world. Everything I've done is like a fight, every single step. My mission is to create a collection that's completely sustainable. It's organic, traceable, uses minimal chemicals, and it's produced in the smallest geographic region. My first goal was, can I even do this? Can I get back to fields and can I trace every single bit in in the kind of supply chain? So can I get back to the farmers, the weavers, the spinners, the manufacturers, kind of connect the whole thing together? So that was my kind of my aim and my goal. And then it was to do that in a very sustainable, ethical, socially responsible way, but also with a minimum carbon footprint. So, you know, we didn't want to find a farmer, let's say, in Turkey and spin it in China, go to Italy to be manufactured for example. So we were trying to see how condensed we could make the supply chain and how sustainable we could do it. We still operate like that today and we do that for all of our garments and some things we managed to get right back to and some things we just managed to buy better fibres and actually we decided in the sort of honour of transparency to just tag all of our products with what we'd managed to achieve per garment so you as a customer could see what we've managed to achieve or not achieve. So some garments we do get right back to the country of origin of the product. So let's say it's cotton, we know that it's organically grown through the GOT certification, but in Turkey, let's say, so we know that. When you start looking into sustainability and you start looking at supply chains, it doesn't just become about the supply chain. You then have to work out what you're making and why you're making it and where is it going to go after that and how do you run your offices and how do we heat our offices? How many seasons are we making and are we making too many things? And actually a truly sustainable business model is that you're rethinking all the time everything you're doing and trying to do it better. So it didn't just touch our supply chains, it's touched every kind of element of what we do and how we operate and how we communicate. I'd love to hear also how it touched your approach to design, because that's something that we talk a lot about here. And how did it change your thinking when you approach creating a collection and designing a product, the aesthetics of it, the final result? In sort of traditional you know, training, I went to university and trained or kind of design jobs. You look for inspiration and you design a product and you find a nice fabric swatch and you 
put something on paper and then you hand it to your production and development teams and say, this is what I want to make. And actually what happened to us once we learned about what we were doing, we realised that in order to get the supply chain correct, we had to start there first. So we didn't start with design, we started with supply chain. Once we'd found a fabric that we liked but that fit the correct criteria, we then looked at that fabric and thought, what can we now do with this? So it was a very different way. Normally you find a fabric to fit your design. This way we're fitting a design into a fabric and a supply chain that we approve. And we design still like this today. And in our fittings, you know, we'll have a model and our team. And we all talk about the product endlessly. Once upon a time in a fit, you just thought, does it look good and does it fit correct? And now we look at the fit, the fabric, we look at the supply chains, we look at any wastage, how it's laid up on the fabric. When you cut a garment, you create it in paper and then you lay the paper on and you cut the fabric around the paper. You know, if there's huge gaps where we're wasting fabric, you know, we look at all that too. We look at what we're making and why we're making it and who's going to wear it and how we all might feel in it. These days, if it doesn't pass the test of that fit room where at least some of us are saying, I would love this, I would really wear it, you know, it'd be a core staple in my wardrobe. If we're all a bit, "Mm, I'm not sure I like it or where are you really going to wear that to? Or, you know, if we all sort of collectively think this isn't going anywhere, we just don't make it. And if the supply chain and the fabrics don't connect either, we just don't make it. So it's a much more thoughtful process today than it used to be. So you're thinking more about function and utility as well, but do you find that there's still a lot of room to be creative uh, with your designs while considering all of these additional factors? I actually like boundaries. I like to have a brief... Sometimes I think creativity is so vast and so free that I think in a way putting the boundaries on it, it focuses you more. Maybe you create a more functional product at the end or a more considered product at the end. There was a lot of commentators who spoke about a a certain amount of shock value that viewers will be surprised and shocked about the amount of waste in the fashion industry. A lot of feedback I've had from people that have seen the film already, journalists, etc., in the fashion industry say they thought they knew but they didn't know so I think even people that think they're in the know and they think they understand the fashion industry and they think they understand supply chains what this film really shows is how complicated it is and to connect the dots between a garment and all the origins it's had along the way is very complicated that's shocked people like the statistics in terms of the wastage that we've got and then I think the kind of eye-opening journey that I go on and it explains to the viewer how complicated that is. I think they're the two things that will resonate with people the most that don't sort of aren't thick in in the industry. I feel very separate from the fashion scene. I don't know, I never felt like I fit in. We all kind of sped up too fast in this generation. We produce 100 billion items of clothing every year. More collections, more gold, and three out of five of them end up in landfill. The chemicals, the quantity, the pollution, the carbon emissions. It's complete nonsense. For you, what were some of the most eye-opening moments on that journey that you show on film and the things that made you really change the way you approach design and your your job in general? If you're a designer and you're working with a fabric swatch and a sketch and a pencil and the people in your room, you're in a kind of a mini culture in that room. When you start meeting all these people that 
touch your cloth, you know, the spinners, the weavers, and you realise all the human hands and animal hands, you know, that have touched the garments along the way, you suddenly have to think about all those people and have to respect all those people. And for me, it's made me treasure what we're doing so much more than before. When I look at a piece of cloth now, I don't just see a piece of fabric. I see all the people that went into that. And obviously I don't know them individually necessarily. It really hits home how many human hands had to touch that and how much we need to look after those people and respect those people and we need to look at our products in a very different way. Do you find that your role as a designer and all designers' roles and responsibility now has had to evolve to start to consider product and design like this and also to educate their end customer about where their clothes are made and about having to change the way they make purchasing decisions and just generally get dressed uh, in the morning? I mean, I guess I didn't think I needed to do that originally. And even when I set out on this journey, I just thought it's my duty as a business owner and a product maker to make the right and the best thing. But the more I got into it, the more I realised how little people understood about the subject matter, how little designers or journalists or buyers, you know, retailers, they just did not understand or hadn't even thought to get further than buying a garment and looking at its price. I ended up sort of by default becoming an activist, I guess, at the same time. I've been doing it for a long time and authentically doing it with real passion. It's become my duty because... If I'm empowered by the knowledge, I need to share that knowledge and share that experience. The counter issue with that is the fact that now there's a lot of people communicating about it and maybe not really actioning what they need to action, which we're calling greenwashing. There's a lot more conversation, but I don't know how much action there truly is. For you and for Mother of Pearl, what's next in 2023, having already implemented so many different changes in the business? What are you now working towards and yeah. hoping to achieve? Having small children, I've only really been able to maintain what we've done rather than kind of progress as far as I want to get to the next stage, let's say. We've done incredibly well and we're still way more kind of ahead than most designers, um, but as a true perfectionist and someone truly passionate about sustainability, I definitely want to start looking at circularity for our business. So things um, in terms of resale, kind of repair, etc. I think we've done a lot of work in supply chains. And the thing with supply chains is we continue to do that. You know, as a production and development department, we don't just say, okay, this is it and that's it. We're constantly looking, we're constantly changing, we're constantly communicating. So the supply chain is ever evolving and we're always looking for solutions and that will never change. And especially with innovation and technology as well and you know as we're growing the sustainability sector is growing too so there will be new technologies new fabrications new fibers you know better farmers better practices that we can always embark on so that's just an ongoing situation but in terms of business development I think circularity and looking at once we've sold our product what happens to it then because we're in the business model right of kind of linear we're profit and loss we're make and sell which is a very male driven world that we live in and i guess what's interesting in terms of business but interesting in terms of sustainability is how do you keep a piece of the momentum of that product once it's sold and then maybe resold and repaired and resold and you know how do you make sure that that thing that you're selling you have responsibility for kind of after the point of sale as well and I'm quite interested in what we can do in that sector. The designer Amy Powney there in conversation with Monocle's fashion editor Natalie Theodosi. 
Fashion Reimagined, is out in cinemas in the UK on the 3rd of March. And from the 9th of April, it will be available on Sky Documentaries and streaming service now. International listeners, keep an eye on the film's website for release dates. Next on the show, Maylie Evans, uh, Monocle On Design's producer, joins me behind the glass on the other side of the studio where she is busy making me sound good, I hope. Is that is that accurate, Maylie? <laughs> we try. We try. <laughs> I mean, you you were you were I mean, you're far away from me right now on the other side of the glass, but you were even further away recently when uh, you were in Spain. What 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 were you doing there? So I headed over to the Spanish capital um, to check out Madrid Design Festival, which is on at the moment. Will be for a couple more weeks. I've been reading a little bit online and thought you know, like all design projects, it's very different seeing lovely, shiny press images to seeing it in person, feeling the textures and seeing what, what's been made, the scale of it. So I was very excited to head along um, and to check out uh, one particular exhibition. That sounds sensational. I mean, I know the exhibition you particularly wanted to discuss for this episode was Slow Spain. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Slow Spain, uh, Slow Design for Fast Change is a project started up by the American Hardwood Export Council and they invited three prominent Spanish designers to mentor some design students and they were selected from a range of schools across the country, guided them through the making project and gave them the opportunity to work with four different hardwoods that aren't as popular in Europe um, and an opportunity to make with them and sort of find out why, I guess, these particular materials are, are great. That sounds sensational, I guess, partnering big bodies with more, you know, as small an individual as you can get uh, in, in terms of a, a student at the beginning of their career. That, that sounds really beautiful in terms of that sort of partnership. I mean, we're going to hear from Moritz Krefter now, partner at Irma Bermudez, uh, which is based in Valencia. Tell me a little bit about what we're about to hear in this conversation. Set it up for us, Maylee. So um, we're going to hear from Moritz now detailing one of the projects from a designer called Sheila Garcia. And she kind of noticed that um, where she was studying in Logroño in the market. It once was fairly traditional and had spots for people to perch, but more recently had become really modernised, quite fast paced. And there wasn't these opportunities for rest for those who maybe find standing for long periods of times difficult. And so she created a temporary sort of rest that could stand against walls and offer a little a little seat, a little backrest for those who might need a little bit of assistance in that way. It's a really beautiful project. Um, and Moritz sort of discusses some of the woven details in that piece. These objects are really perfectly integrated in that um, antique market hall of Logroño. It has the same green colour, the green feet, the natural wood colour, the weaving thing. She had made her trials with the cord that she wanted to have, but then time was running off. So we were discussing what to use, and in the end we said, listen, Sheila, you have three options this or that or the other one choose and she chose and it was great <laughs> this cord is thicker than the one that she has so it was a bit faster because the weaving she had to do it herself it was not done by the carpenter's workshop you know firsthand the timelines for projects difficulties and challenges and was part of your role in kind of pushing them and going well actually you're going to have to make a decision it's nice to experiment but you need to come up with something quickly and just giving them a little bit more of a nudge in the right direction. There were some technical details that we could help out, some smart things like this rubber feet that it's not standing on the floor when the marketplace gets cleaned, so it would get dirty quickly by humidity. Yeah, and then exactly how you say, timelines, choose now and do it 
now. It was super good from AHIC to send the students to the carpentry, to the workshop. I said they had to go because in the end it's a great opportunity. Why do you think it's really key that students are able to visit carpentry workshops and actually see products being made? Especially for this generation now that unluckily have lived their studies in the pandemic. So they were studying from home and everything is virtual. They have to see how things are done and, and also going to the woodworkers, the best thing you can do ever, the smell and the, to touch the objects. And it's a great experience. And also I think they learned a lot because they kind of know to design in their computers, but they don't touch different materials. Here we have the shelf. It's called Todo Toca. Everything touches. It's made by Eli Young and Anna Peratoner from the EAD in Barcelona. When we selected the project, there was almost nothing to do or to change. There were some details to help them how it could be assembled. And then it has a very nice part, this shelf that I will show you now. These elements can turn and can move. That's what they wanted from the beginning. And then we tried to convince them that the object maybe would look nicer if it would not have been all the 16 panels, if you put only 10 or 12 to leave also some open spaces. But we could not convince them. It's okay. But we invented a system. You can just pull them out very quickly. So they can move and then you take them out. You can create the, let's call it landscape in your shelf what you want and then you just put it back or not. It feels almost like a, a room divider as well. It's a shelving unit that acts. Yeah, as it's, very, it's a very poetic object. It's not a practical shelf. In the beginning, we asked them to carve this structure by hand themselves. These lines here. And the good thing is, they came to the workshop and they tried. And we figured out all together, it's not possible in maple. It's so hard. The, especially these pieces of wood that we got here, that in the end it was done by machine. But the experience, they did it. So it was good for everybody. Reflecting on your own sort of journey in, in the design world, I mean, you started off at the Bauhaus and doing workshops at the Bois Boucher. You know, reflecting on your own time and, and maybe in how students are working now, what's been maybe the biggest shift you've noticed? It's very difficult to compare because for me it was very special. Like I studied at the Bauhaus that 10 years after the reunification of Germany. So I went to Eastern Germany that was still very anarchic and free. Not everything was done. Then we had the very nice old part of the university, but we had also a fantastic brand new workshops. So I could really spend my entire studies years in the workshop. Sometimes I was even not drawing just doing models so that's difficult now to compare to the students here in Barcelona or Madrid that they don't have that space I have to say they are much more virtual much more connected to the mobile everything is possible to model in 3D but then you have to do it later on this is nothing to blame life is going on you know we're in different times what skills do you think is really key for design schools and institutions to really put a focus on if you know we've got students coming out of the pandemic who are really used to doing their own thing being quite 
insular, I suppose, to equip students. So when they do join studios or start up their own places, they're in a better position. The universities, especially here in Spain, they should invest much more in physical workshops for whatever, for wood, for clay, for metal, for printing and workshops and more workshops. It helps a lot to the students to get really in touch with the material. We see that sometimes when we work together with young people, they're really very skilled at the computer. But if you don't know how to construct a shelf in wood or in metal, it also doesn't help you how to model it virtually. Moritz Crafter there. Firstly, I mean, I don't have to thank you for going to Madrid. It, it sounds like you, you had a great time and some, some brilliant conversations. But, I mean, just re- reflecting on those sort of snippets we, we heard there, if, if, if you're a design school, uh, you know, building a curriculum for the next couple of years, what, what, what were some of the key takeaways for you that somebody in that position can, can perhaps implement? It's inviting students who maybe their rote way and their usual format is they go online, they make these wonderful renders on their computer and that's how they design. But offering the opportunity to learn that actually touch and being somewhere physically and working with the material in person is really key to understanding not only your own your own designs and in the realities of of putting a piece together but also understanding for that next stage if you're bringing it to a producer understanding some of the questions they're going to have for you when it comes to producing a thousand ten thousand of these pieces what are going to be those pinch points what are we going to have to reconsider um, if we're moving from a one-off piece to something that actually needs to work when we're you know producing at scale so I think yeah it's coming up with these workshops where people can come in and actually learn by doing rather than sitting behind a screen. Actually physically working through things, you know, no matter what scale, with, with your hands, it can really help you understand feelings that you're not going to get from a computer rendering. You can't get a feel for the texture of a material on a screen. It, it doesn't matter, no matter how hard we try, that is a tactile experience that you can't get from looking at it. And, and the same actually goes also looking at that material in a room, whether you're in a workshop, a clay workshop or a timber workshop, you do see how the light plays with it naturally rather than the artificial glowing of a screen. That sort of side of things is, is going to be invaluable in a design education, no matter how far or, or how advanced we get with Oculus Rift, where you can pop goggles on and, and pretend you're walking through a space. That, that is never going to be a substitute for actually being able to, to touch things and, and get hands on with things. Ultimately, having these sorts of workshops, these sorts of partnerships, whether, you know, it's students being mentored by somebody or, or, or again, working with a bigger organisation, facilitating and, and, and supporting these sorts of encounters and these sorts of workshops and these sorts of moments is, is really, really critical for design education moving forward. And that's the last I'll say on the matter for this, for this episode. The Madrid Design Festival is on until the 9th of April 2023, and we'll have more coverage from the event over the coming weeks. Bio-based materials. What are they and why are they so key when it comes to construction? The first book by the design research practice Material Cultures hopes to answer just that. Called Material Reform, the book features a series of short essays and conversations advocating for a more mindful and natural approach to materiality. To discuss why the built environment has shifted away from natural practices and materials, Co-authors Paloma Gormley and George Massoud joined Monocle's Lillian Fawcett in the studio. Paloma began by introducing their practice. Material Cultures is an organisation that was established to look at the intersection between kind of low embodied carbon materials, so natural materials and plant-based materials, and construction technology. So 
essentially how can we take kind of these ancient methods of making buildings and making spaces and take them into the 21st century using the kind of latest construction methods. So that might be off-site construction or prefabrication and the kind of componentization of, of those materials. And the interest, I guess, in that for us is that we think that this kind of transition in the construction sector is going to be really critical for us kind of responding to the climate crisis. Materials and construction of buildings is responsible for a huge amount of of carbon production. So if we can just change that one industry, then we can have a massive impact. And the book, Material Reform, was us kind of consolidating, I guess, conversations that we've been having over years into a condensed form. So it spans subjects as kind of broad as the extraction processes, so the kind of where the materials come from, right up to kind of looking at very specific materials and how they're used in buildings. George, a key focus of the book is on bio-based materials and use of them in the construction process, and you're advocating that they are more widely used in, in construction and architecture. There are chapters on soil, clay, stone, straw and timber. What are bio-based materials and how are they different to what is used in mainstream construction now? So most materials that are used in mainstream construction are petrochemical-based materials. And bio-based materials are natural materials such as clay and straw or hemp. And these are materials that come from the ground and are part of a kind of regenerative cycle. And I think, you know, these are kind of primary materials that we work with and we think can have quite a big impact if they're used at a much larger scale. You mentioned that bio-based materials are extracted in a, in a more regenerative way. Can you explain a bit about what, what is meant by that? I guess the root of regenerative practices is, is practices that rehabilitate the land, that put carbon back into the soils, that increase biodiversity. And a lot of the kind of more industrial processes in agriculture have also been very destructive, as we're kind of learning increasingly, to those ecosystems. So in advocating for plant-based materials, we're aware that that's going to have a a massive impact on land use and a kind of demand on agriculture. So we're trying to think about the nuances of how this kind of construction product cultivation can be also part of regenerative land use. So that might mean using different species in construction or thinking about how actual kind of planting design might go in tandem. To apply some of these regenerative principles that are rooted in agricultural practices, but um, across many different kind of uh, parts of the supply chain. So we're talking about labor practices, but we're also talking about ways that we relate to one another. And we're also talking about ways of governance. What's really interesting in the work that, or at least in the way that we are thinking about this kind of regenerative frameworks is how they can apply not just to materials, but also to many different other aspects of the material cycle. Construction isn't necessarily something the average consumer sees or engages with, unlike, say, the food or fashion industries. Has that made it a bit of a blind spot for environmental movements, do you think? 
Yeah, and there's a real irony there in that so many of the buildings over the past kind of couple of decades that have been celebrated for their environmental credentials are jam-packed often with polyurethane bones and polystyrene and all of these things that make them hyper-insulated that pretty much invariably yeah, have been petrochemical-based. There's been this real obsession with a very kind of high-tech, often high-carbon environmental response, which is all predicated on this narrative of reducing the kind of carbon demand in use while a building's being inhabited and over its lifespan. And whilst that is very important, it, it just has ignored this, you know, the other side of the coin, which is what went into making, putting that building in the first place. How much energy did that take? What were the consequences of the those material choices? Um, and we're learning increasingly that they've been incredibly damaging and devastating to the environment so the two things really now need to kind of go hand in hand and I think we would advocate also hand in hand with with a different approach to landscape and landscape management. Another major theme of the book is time whether that's short-sightedness in focusing on just aesthetics or overuse like you say of certain materials like glass or steel do we need a longer more long-term view of uh, of architecture and design, do you think, George? Yes, I think so. I think a lot of the materials that we use today reflect a very kind of a sense of urgency, you know, whether it's in the time frame of a project or whether also it's in the fact that, you know, materials are expected to, to look exactly the same within the next hundred years of the project's kind of timeline. I think time is a really interesting thing to think about in relation to materials, especially because I think a lot of the materials that we advocate uh, for expect in a way a very different relationship to the building and to the built environment. One which is about a constant uh, or a different relationship of care towards building and maintenance and, and it becomes a really something that should be very much ingrained within our culture of uh, just accepting that, you know, certain materials need to kind of be renewed or repaired or cared for in a different way. The lifespan of a lot of the kind of office buildings going up in, in London is, is often kind of shockingly short. You know, these really demanding kind of, you know, concrete steel and glass buildings that you know, I think there's an average of 20 years or something, hmm. you know, remarkably low. So there's this fallacy, in a way, that those materials are the resilient ones, the ones that are made to last. Actually, they, they can, these kinds of buildings can age very quickly, whereas, you know, you kind of see it from the buildings around us, the kind of historic buildings made in the Victorian era or even before that, generally are made with the kind of palette of natural materials, timber, brick, are the ones that have actually aged very beautifully and, and got more rich and, in a way, more elegant as they've aged. And finally, George, I'm interested in what influenced the design of the book itself. It's pocket-sized with very short chapters. How do you hope people will engage with it and who do you hope is going to read it? We had lots of conversations at the beginning as to how we put this book together and who the audience would be. And I think also in the kind of the way that we described some of these ideas, we went through several iterations of how that language comes together. I hope that the book is accessible and, and feels quite easy to carry around. 
and actually that you're able to kind of just open any chapter and and engage with at any point within the book. It's not the kind of book that you need to read from start to finish, but instead you can kind of dive in at any point. I think also it's important for us that it comes across as a kind of a you know, a series of conversations or a work in progress that these are ideas that we've been kind of uh, working with, but actually they're in constant evolution. And and I think that's why, you know, we have a kind of a, a further reading section at the back that can kind of take you into the portal of many different uh, worlds. George Massoud and before that, Paloma Gormley, in conversation with Lillian Fawcett. Material Reform, Building for a Post-Carbon Future, is published by Mac Books and available to purchase at all good bookstores now. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylie Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.